Cool, so welcome again, guys, to another Coffee and Heroes podcast. Time now for another creator interview. So your host, as always, Alan, from Coffee and Heroes in Belfast. I'm joined, of course, by Keith this evening as well. And today's guest needs no introduction to our listeners, as he is one of the preeminent comic creators from our wee country slash Northern Ireland delete where applicable. Not only that, but his work hangs proudly on the walls of Coffee and Heroes, depicting Judge Dredd enjoying a cup of coffee. Clearly a career highlight. But having worked in the industry for almost three decades at this point, he has drawn for DC, Image Comics, Dynamite Entertainment and Aftershock, and collaborated with the likes of Cy Spurrier, Garth Ennis and Al Ewing, all the while becoming a household name in the world of 2000 AD. But having chatted with him recently in store, it is clear the best is yet to come. So ladies and gentlemen, our guest today is none other than PJ Holden. Good evening, sir. How are you keeping? I'm doing great. Thank you very much. What a lovely intro. So you are, uh, you are, you said earlier on, just before we started recording, you are for Belfast? Yeah, I'm from Belfast. I've always, because when I grew up in Belfast, it felt like like comics was a different world. I mean, I, 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 um, it felt like to be a comic artist was like wanting to be an astronaut. It just was not achievable. It was just not, it wasn't a realistic ambition at all. There was no way to get there. There, nobody knew anything about it. Like there, you know, I think there was at that point even. So the Stanley How to Draw Comics on Marvel Way was probably available from about eighty five, I think. Um, but I was sort of trying to figure out stuff when age thirteen, fourteen. Um, I mean, I'm making excuses because I know like uh, John McRae had a similar situation. He just didn't care. He just powered on. Whereas I was like, oh, I can't see how to do this. I'd better go and think of something else to do. Um, I mean, I, I, but I, I always like for me, comics. And drawing comics was as realistic and achievable a goal. Well, it was less realistic and less achievable a goal, a goal than working in computers because I was really into computers. I was probably into them. I wasn't, I was like in the 80s, I was what you'd have called a, a computer whiz kid. That's what I was. Um, <laughs> so I was working from the age 14, working in computers. And so that felt like that. there's a career there, there's a job there, there's a way to find money. People were handing me money just boom, boom, boom for working for doing stuff I really liked, whereas comics was like, I don't even know where the door is, let alone how to get into the door. It just felt <laughs> so weird and far away. Um, so it took a long time, I think, to even kind of break, you know, to, to kind of break the notion that there's a way to in here. There's a, you know, you, you can get in here. So, but it, but I always think whenever, um, when I'm doing stuff, when I'm doing autobiography, little you have to write little bios, and every single title that you do, somebody says, "Can you write a wee bio about yourself?" And I was like, "Oh Jesus!" Uh, uh, and so I always start it with Belfast-based comic artist PJ Holden because I think if I could send that back in time to yes. me when I was eleven or twelve, I would go, "Oh, there's a comic artist from Belfast." I, I you know. That means that that's possible. I mean, I didn't realize at the time there was quite a few comic artists in Belfast that that I knew nothing about. Um, one of them, for example, Ian Knox. So Ian Knox is best known now as a political cartoonist. But when I was a kid, Ian Knox was drawn for Cheeky and uh, he was drawn lots and lots of kids strips, which mm-hmm. I was reading. And I, you know, I'd recognize Ian Knox's signature. I had no idea he was from Belfast. None whatsoever, yeah. no clue. And how would you know? Like you wouldn't know unless you knew him personally. Uh, Leslie Stanich as well. I think he's another. He's a Beano artist uh, that was um, uh, doing stuff for the. Uh, may even still be doing stuff for the Beano, but I think he's ended. I think he's museum works for museums or something. But um, th- there was no way to find any of this stuff out. So I always made it a very 
um, primary point to, you know, really highlight that I'm from Belfast. I mean, it has changed. I, I think it, I, I think I was Northern Ireland based comic artist and sometimes it's Belfast based comic artist. But, you know, I'm, I'm Belfast. I live maybe maybe 100 yards from where I was born 50 years, 52 years ago. So, <laughs> you know, I'm not I, I am definitely a Belfast boy. But um, but that you know, was uh, I mean, that was the aim was always to get into comics. You just happened to segue into IT. No, 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 no. I, I like when I was a kid, it was both. There was no like uh, genuinely either one was good for me. I didn't care. I was like, I love computers. I love drawing. I, I couldn't figure out how to marry those two jobs. In fact, I went to um, my careers advisor when you're 13 or 14, oh. go to a careers advisor. And I said, I love drawing and I love computers. What should I do? And I went, oh, you should do technical design. I think I was like, I don't know, technical design. It's like, that's technical design is, for those that don't know, is basically how to draw a camshaft and how to, you know, how to draw a house and measure a house yeah. out and stuff. And it's like, there is computers in it, but it's not, you know, it's a They're different piece altogether. It's not, well, I mean, it can be creative, I suppose, if you're an architect, but like at a certain level, certainly at that level, not creative at all. And And I think it was, I mean, let, I mean, high on earth would a careers advisor go? Yeah, you should be working in comics, mate. That's that's the path for you. But it, it, to me, both things were equally as important, and only one of them offered a de definite job, and that was computers. But they were both as important as each other. There was no, there was no. I'd rather do this or I'd rather do that, that. So I was working, I was working in computers from the age of fourteen to I stopped. I gave up my day job uh, when I was thirty-eight. I was and that, and I'd been working in comics for about eight years professionally while I'd been working in IT. So I was doing both for for a long time. And I I still I mean like it's taken me it's taken me maybe over 10 12 years now when someone's at a computer and they're clicking something and it's not working it's taken me that long for me not to go here, I'll just let me. <laughs> I can, so I'm sitting there biting my lip, going, "Not yours. Just leave it. Leave it. Leave it." Because it, it was my job was IT support essentially most of my life. So it was when people were having computer problems, I'd go, "Here's how to fix that. Let me do that. I'll sort that out for you." Which but, ended up. I mean, uh, yeah, I ended up because of that. I I got into Clip Studio very early, um, and I ended up writing lots of articles for Imagine FX about Clip Studio. Uh, became very friendly with Dave Gibbons because of that, weirdly. Um, and, um, you know, and I've, I've done lots of um, digital demos for, for companies and stuff on Clips View and, and have ended up drawing on the computer, which is the job I wanted when I was 14, but didn't exist. So, you know, <laughs> I suppose if, you, if you're bloody minded enough. You find your way. Yeah. <laughs> you I mean, that was the way. thing I always thought about the difference between me saying a, a lot of other, because I knew a lot of people who were into art. They didn't have a backup plan. It was art was what, what they wanted to do. So they tried to find a way through to art. And art can be quite, um, not unforgiving, but it can be quite hard to find a spot where you're paid to do stuff you love. You know, it, it, you, you, can, you can find a spot where you're paid to do stuff, but it's finding to do stuff that you love and, and to draw is quite difficult. And I think for a lot of people who maybe went to art college, their expectations, certainly for my age, uh, if they went to art college, they maybe wouldn't have got to do illustration. They would have been sort of shown how to do graphic design and that would have been the pathway for them, would have been a graphic design. Whereas what happened with me is I went into computers, stayed in computers, it paid quite well and just doodled 
all the time. I just kept doodling. And nobody told me these are the wrong kind of drawings. Nobody went, that's not what you should be drawing, which is what happened to the people who went to art college. It was like, uh -huh. no, you shouldn't be doing that kind of drawing. You should be focusing on this kind of drawing. And so I think maybe there was, that was to my advantage. You know, I, I was allowed to kind of very slowly, very slowly get good enough or at least be able to fake good enough to to get into 2008 and then over the course of 20 years get good enough that i mean i'm fairly confident i could pretty much draw anything at this point i can't guarantee it'd be good but i can i can draw anything like i could turn my hand to, to any kind of comic book stuff um but that's taken a long long time to get there but uh, but honestly like if if someone were to chop off my hands and say look you know you can't draw anymore but we've given you a computer and you can do some programming i go okay I'll have a go at that then. That's fine. And then, you know, because I, I still, I mean, I, st I sometimes I'll catch myself watching a YouTube video about here's how to program functional programming in in, in whatever, uh, uh, in object, Objective-C or something. And I'm sitting there watching it for 20 minutes and going, why am I watching this? I, know, I, I think we all do that with YouTube or something similar. Yeah. Well, I mean, lately I've been watching a lot of woodworking videos, which is slightly more... At least with the woodworking videos, I'm kind of I can I know I can't I'm, I know I don't have the equipment I know I'm not going to do that but it's like a nice calming bomb yeah, it's like this is lovely <laughs> like listening to Gardener's Question Time I don't really have a garden but at the same time having a debate where people go excuse me I have a question and they go yes what is your question and they're all riled up and they go if I've got some hydrangeas what's the best way to irrigate them over the winter months. Ah, well, and then four experts lay in with their opinion. Not one of them's going, nah, this guy doesn't, this guy's talking bobbins here. And none of that. It's all very nice. And you kind of think, well, these people know what they're talking about. It's the like the last bastion where people are allowed to be experts in something is gardening and maybe woodworking, possibly plumbing. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but but on, like I will find myself watching a programming video going, oh, this is really interesting. This is totally fascinating. And then about halfway through going, Why? I'm not doing this. Don't, 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 don't just click off. You'd mentioned 2008 there. Of course, you know, you've spent a lot of time working there like so many comic creators. I mean, what is it about that world that's so enduring and appealing for comic creators? Because so many of the greats cut their teeth there. Well, I can tell you exactly why it's appealing for people who've gone away and come back to work for 2008. They they let you do what you want to do. <laughs> they don't get in your way. They kind of you go to them and say, "This is the story I'd like to do." They go, "Yeah, okay." You go yeah, without, or they'll like, "No," but they, you know, for the most part, they'll go, "Okay." And there's no micromanagement. There's no look. You need to have Wolverine in three episodes of this, and also you can't. You can't use uh, Kang the Conqueror or whoever because he's going to be appearing there, so you can't touch him. And this guy's off limits. And also, I know you've got about four parts of, of the way through this story with your plot, but we need you to change it because we've got a crossover about the happening. <laughs> and I, I mean, I know I've like a lot of uh, writer friends um, that have worked for Marvel and DC, and it and it can be like that. It can be kind of you know, this, we love you, what you're doing here, but also your main bad guy has to be this guy instead of that guy. And it's like, well, that changes the plot. I can't, I can't be my bad guy. I mean, I'll, I'll not say who it is but uh, or what it was, but there was a friend of mine had written a multi-part serial. The bad guy was bad guy X, who had certain powers and abilities and certain motivations and so on. And it started with bad guy X is my villain. He's going to be the surprise reveal and everyone's going to go, <gasps> gasp, it's bad guy X. And through some part of it, um, the editor kind of went, actually, bad guy X is being used by the other office 
for a thing, so you can't use him. He's now off limits. And so this is before the reveal. And so he had to start changing the plot because it reveal end, reveal was going to use that character's uh, motivations and experiences and history to to make it resonate. And so he had to start scrambling and looking for another another bad guy. And and oh. then as the reveal was coming up, they came back and said, actually. He's free now. You can use him if you want. <laughs> In fact, we'd rather you did because that was the original pitch. And so, so, so I, a lot of the time, I think fans don't understand any of the stuff that, that's going on. And I think they they, um, they can kind of misinterpret what's what's happening under the under the bonnet of it, which is fine because you're. I mean, you, you don't want the understanding. You don't like. I want to drive a car. I don't want to understand how the engine works. You know, I, that's. That's not the. That's not why I buy a car. I don't buy a car thinking brilliant. A car to look after for six months. I'll get to really understand this engine. You don't do. It. You buy it to go from A to B, and you buy a comic to read it and enjoy it. You don't buy it to think. I wonder what internecine political political things are going on here that mean that this uh, villain isn't being used this month. You, no one cares about that, you know. Or at least they shouldn't. You know, I, I do think we kind of like anyone sort of obsessive about anything. You kind of you do start thinking, what's going on behind the scenes, you know? And we're all guilty of that. It's you know, so. But, but uh, yes, you'll but, notice that when I answer a question, I suddenly stop because <laughs> I, I just I realized I don't even know what I'm talking about now. I should just stop here. Just, no, no, oh, you, were, so you were saying that 2000 AD didn't. didn't oh yes, those yes, limitations. Yeah, 2000 AD doesn't do any of that stuff. I mean, you go to 2000 AD. I generally. You'll either have a dread, or you'll have some other character that you've co-created or created. Uh, but for the most part, you kind of go, "This is what I want to do." And Matt Smith, the editor, will go, "Yeah, that sounds great. You know, and let's do that." And that's it. It's as simple as that. It's it's a very easy, um, easy working relationship, and that's why a lot of I mean, one of the reasons they a lot of people can't or don't do that is because, I mean, frankly, 2080 doesn't produce enough material to allow a writer to have the same income they would. Right, the Marvel or DC book. I mean, if you're doing like if you're doing a DC or 2080 strip, for my part, for example, um, the deadlines I get will tend to be like two weeks for six pages, which is loads of time. But two weeks for six pages means I can only do four 2080 twelve pages a month at a page rate, which you know whatever whatever your page rate is, twelve pages a month isn't that much. It's not that much work. If you're doing stuff for Marvel or DC, you're getting far more work from them, actual work. And the page rate is, you know, you sometimes higher, sometimes you know, but the same. But it's 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 really just the volume of work, you know. Um, you can you just can't get that volume of work doing stuff for two thousand eighty. Unfortunately, uh, otherwise I'd be in there all the time and be yeah. dead happy, you know. Um, <laughs> and also, like two thousand eighty, I think is a lot more willing to allow, from an artist's perspective, allow an artist to be more expressive and and allow them to go off on little weird tangents you know they you know i've i've done strips in the past um so the future shocks which i'm sure most people will have heard of but they're four pages with a, a, a self-contained story four pages with sting in the tail and i've done future shocks before i did a, a little horror strip where i thought oh do you know what'd be really great in this little four page horror that's only going to be appearing once is if i do it black and white with a kind of lurid green for the horrific element like that like it's really lurid green <laughs> and i did that as four pages like and you can do that and matt's going yeah that looks great and it gets printed and that's the end of it there's no like if i if i if Marvel kind of, we want you to do a four-part miniseries. You'd go, yeah, I'm going to do it all black and white with lurid green. They'd go, what the fuck? No way. No, 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 no. Let's put some proper color on that and forget the lurid. Um, whereas 
2008, just in the, because of the format and because the editor is kind of happy for you to go with it, uh, you're you're kind of allowed to stretch a bit more, you know. Uh, and uh, and it leans to my taste, but it leans to my taste because I grew up reading 2008, so it's it's very very in my wheelhouse. I think I am. Um, it is weird to say these things out loud because you think to yourself, you sound like an arsehole. But I think <laughs> I am a kind of prototypical 2008 artist. Like even the very first thing I did for 2008, which I don't think was particularly good. When I looked at it, I thought, well, it doesn't look out of place. It doesn't look like it doesn't belong. You know, it wasn't it wasn't so abhorrent that you'd go, that shouldn't be in there. It was like, OK, I can see that has a place. I and mean, now I think I've got a lot better. But um, I think when when I'm doing stuff, I'm kind of thinking, yeah, I, I mean, I like, again, it sounds like a ginormous ego. I like how I draw dread. Like, uh-huh. I mean, you have to like how you draw your own version of dread, I suppose, but it can take you a while to find a version where you're like, no, this dread is exactly what I want him to look like. So it took me about 15 years you know, of drawing dread to get to a dread where I go, A, that looks like I drew that, and B, I actually like how that looks now. And in fact, nearly my preference nearly my preferred dread you know <laughs> that's yeah. uh i mean that's that's awesome and obviously you've you've enjoyed working for working for for 2000 ID, but i mean over uh over a, a career that has now spanned almost yeah. eight years did he think i was drawn when i was five years old What's going on? <laughs> have you had a have you had a, a favorite collaborator or, or project thus far um i I hesitate to say because I don't want to pick favourites, but but clearly, um, no, I mean, I generally, I, don't, I think I've only ever had one project where I thought, oh, this was all a mistake on my part. Um, and even that was a, like a very, very short little strip. So it didn't, you know, it wouldn't bother me too much. And and part of that as well is really early stage of my career. Like sometimes I'd be sitting drawing, I'll be thinking to myself, huh, they're paying me to learn how to draw. <laughs> uh, those idiots, I don't, know, I don't know how to do this. I'm just making this stuff up. <laughs> so it's it's like it's all great like as far as i'm concerned it's all good and it's it's um i'm i think i'm very lucky in that i'm very fast or i'm reasonably fast which means i, I don't get too bored of the stuff that i'm doing so you know like I, I, like the longest the longest projects i've done so far have really been with garth ennis and garth's a like a phenomenal writer but scares me. I'm not be honest. He scares me. I, every email I send, I think this is all right, Garth. I mean, I say I do that with every editor. Every email, if an editor or a writer I'm working with, I'll always send them and saying, and I, I genuinely mean this. I always write, oh, this is okay. I'm not even hoping that it's good. I'm just hoping it's okay. <laughs> I mean, just please let this be okay. Please let this be all right. Please let this meet the bare minimum threshold of acceptance that I can get on and do the next bit and then maybe invoice for this bit. Um, I mean, I'm trying my best. I am at all times trying my best. Sometimes my best not good enough. Um, but it's, you know, I, I think, yeah, I've worked with Garth the longest. And I, I find that every, I like my preference really is, I like every writer I've ever worked with. I can't think of any writer I wouldn't work with two or three more times if I could. I'd love to work with Al Ewing again. I've, I've, I've worked with Al a couple of times. Um, Rob Williams, one of my best mates. Um, we've worked very little together, oddly, um, but hopefully we'll be doing some more stuff. No, I know we're doing some more stuff. Um, Garth, uh, uh-huh. uh, I'm definitely, you know, Garth writes great stuff. And like every every piece that I've done with Garth, I've been proud of in a way that... that um, is different than the pride you might have for other work and it's like i am proud to be part of that project because it 
feels more important maybe than some of the other things because they are generally I mean they're they're documents about real people and real things and so on so um and I I it's my job to make them kind of interesting to look at and, and make you want to read them um so but i do find like I'll, I'll start a project very very excited about it and by the end of it i'll be tearing my hair out going like oh why did i think jungle was a good idea why did i think you know <laughs> what possessed me to think drawing guys with hats walking through the jungle for 160 pages would be easy by the time i got to 159 it's not um so that's you know so it, all projects have a kind of that sort of life where it's like, oh, super excited, super excited. Oh, my God, this is really hard. Oh, my God, this is really hard. <gasps> Thank God it's over. You know, <laughs> like that. And then it takes it like with Garth and the war stuff. I usually email him afterwards and say, Garth, really love doing this. Would love to do more stuff with you. Don't give me any war things for at least a year. Just let just let me not do war because it's exhausting. Um, and I, I mean, I spent I did a, a a war story with Garth called the String Bags, and then I spent the following year basically doing lots of short things for 2008 because and, and tonally they're very different. I like tonal changes. I like tonal shifts. So for me, it's like if I do a horror, I want to do a comedy next. If I do a comedy. Like I'm desperate to do a horror, you know, and and so in fact I did um I did a, a book called Soul Plumber uh, with John McRae and the guys from the last podcast on the left, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, which is coming out I think in October collections coming out in October and um they uh that was just balls out comedy it was just very silly very daft over the top ultra violent very very goofy and. I think in the middle of the episode, I emailed 2008 and said, hey, I've got a pitch for a horror short story. Please, can I draw this? And Because I so wanted to draw a horror story and no one was going to offer me a horror story. I had to write my own horror story. <laughs> so, so, yeah, sometimes I, I kind of, it's like, if I've done an awful lot of one thing, I want to do something like totally different. But like, I've loved every project. I don't think there's any I wouldn't kind of, I mean, sometimes I'll look at it and go, oh, I wish I could redraw that bit or this bit, or, you know, but for the most part, I'm, I'm quite happy that I've yeah. done them. And I've done a lot of stuff at this point. I mean, I don't know how quite how much it is, but it's it's a lot, but not as much as John and <laughs> a bunch of others, you know. Um, yeah, we always, whenever, whenever we hear uh, our, our artist buddies calling out for, for horror and you're going to do horror we're always going oh that uh, i don't know if you've read uh, silver coin oh yeah well yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. It's, it's good uh, it's yeah good. yeah we team up there maybe yeah. <laughs> that, well, would, that I mean, would fit nicely it would be lovely but i think the 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 usp of, of silver coin is that it's uh is it matt walsh is it mike matt, matt Ma- walsh, michael walsh michael walsh, yeah. michael walsh yeah so he's the artist on it and he just gets different writers into oh that. yes that, that is the case yes, so, so there's he's no need for an artist <laughs> But what about um, an artist who wants like to write a bit more? Well, well, maybe. I mean, the, the thing with the horror story I did for 2008 was um, I hadn't read The Silver Coin at the time. Um, was it had a, a similar a similar idea that there's a MacGuffin in it that is introduces a horror element. So mm. in the in the story that I had, which is called Roots, it introduced this idea of this bottle of black ink. And the ink is the ink of Cthulhu. And ah. the, idea is, the idea is that everyone that goes near this black ink is in some way changed. So, for example, you know, you can imagine, I mean, it's it's a great idea for a story seed because you can just sit there thinking, well, what would happen if somebody tattooed themselves with Cthulhu's ink? What would, what would happen if somebody wrote love letters with Cthulhu's ink? You know, what would happen if somebody pressed Cthulhu's ink into a record? So you, you've got suddenly 
this little conceit that gives you a hundred different ideas. So I've, I've written, I've got a couple of other stories written. I've got one fully finished and I've got another half a dozen that are kind of little ideas. But I hadn't, I mean, I, I hadn't read uh, Michael Walsh's Silver Coin, which essentially is, I think there's a haunted silver coin that that's, passes that's from the one, yeah. person to person. And every person that gets it, there's a horrific element to it. So it's, it's got a similar sort of conceit in that it's a singular item that tells allows you to tell different stories. I think we've just come up, you know, come at the same yeah. problem. And I think the problem is you want to draw lots of different stories. How do I link them all together while at the same time being able to have enough flex and to play with different ideas? So, um, yeah. So The, the yeah. Ink of Cthulhu, that's a nice one. Yeah, well, it was it came out it genuinely came out. There was a comic came out a few years ago called Strip Magazine, which was uh, being published in Bosnia. I think it was funded by a guy from Bosnia, and it seemed it felt to me it so much stuff was going wrong with it. The um, I was doing a strip in it uh, with John Freeman, and John Freeman was acting as editor for it, and this guy who was paying for it seemed to have loads of things going wrong. And I was talking to um, a, a friend of mine. Um, I, 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 this was years. This was like ten years ago or something. And I suggested that you know maybe his main problem is number one that he's using stolen cursed gold. That could be it. That could be why it's always going wrong. Or or maybe he's printing with the ink of Cthulhu. Maybe that's <laughs> what's happening. And and that's what's cursed him. I don't I don't know. And then and then I kind of thinking about it, thinking Cthulhu's inks are really interesting because he's a squid. It's a giant octopus-headed yeah. god, isn't it? So he's got ink, probably. So what would that do to you if you ingested it or you did something with it? You know. So in the story that I wrote for 2018, essentially the this um, little woman's son uh, breaks into her house to steal some money so he can buy drugs, and she's been feeding her plants the ink of Cthulhu, and her plants have kind of turned into these big kind of and grab her son, and <laughs> her son ends up becoming a plant in her garden, which she then sits and prunes. And it's all about you know how much mother's love can you handle. Uh. Really? You know? so, um, so, but it's only four pages. So very um, cool. Very but it cool. was it had lots of nice horrific imagery in it, which was sort of countered everything I was drawn at that point. And it was like it's nice and dark. I mean, weirdly, I've been thinking a lot of stuff, and it's mostly sci-fi comedy stories at the moment so it does feel like sometimes my brain just goes no that's enough of that i need to think about something else you know for a little bit so so there we go yeah i mean the writing end of it is is like that's my first written credit in 2018 although weirdly like maybe 1997 or something there was uh i don't know how far back your internet usage goes but um in night in the in the mid 90s um there was a thing called message boards, which were or news groups or other news groups. Uh -huh. So you, there was a news group called Alt Comics 2080, alt.comics.2080. A lot of these are archived up on Google. And um, Andy Diggle, who was editor at the time, had, uh, was would post regularly on this news group. And I would post and a bunch of other people would post, and which is how they saw my artwork before, before I even got to a comic convention. And I'd someone had said about... Um, uh, you know, let's pitch some story ideas. Here, what about a fun story idea? And I was working in the IT at the time, and I came up with this idea, which was weirdly. First of all, I posted this idea, and a, a writer, John Smith, actually said, "Ah, that's that's you know that's a, a very um, stereotypical sci-fi idea." And then 
almost identical idea was was used on uh, the on a film. Uh, so you know, much later. But I, I I typed up this little sci-fi idea. So the idea is that um, in the future, there's uh, transport is all done by um, teleportation. You go into a little enclosed booth and you turn up. You go you walk in naked into these enclosed booths. You uh, teleport to the other side of the world into another enclosed booth and you walk out naked, right? And I had worked in IT, so I knew that, for example, when you copy a file, a digital file, what actually happens is, say, or, or when you move a file from one location to another, what actually happens is the file is um, duplicated and then the original is deleted. And I thought that would be, that, that's a fun, like if, if what's happening is your brain's read and they send, send your DNA uh -huh. and they send your brain scan and they create a clone of you that's identical to you and then kill the original. That's that's a horrific little sci-fi element. Yeah, yeah. If people go in there thinking, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna go over to see my parents here. I'm just gonna pop into the transmitter, press a wee button, and then they appear and they appear the other side of the world. And I and I basically the gist of the story is this little pop, you know, this little uh, the guy in in um uh you know the little DNA strand that uh, and annotates how Dinosaurs are cloned. Yeah, he yeah, pops yeah. out and goes, "Hey, I'm a jaunty little DNA strand. I don't tell you what's going to happen. Woo! Scan all the information from your brain. Woo! And transmit it to the other side of the world. Woo! And then we're going to take a copy of your DNA and we're going to transmit that. And across the new world, we're going to reassemble and knit together an exact duplicate of you with all of your memories up to this moment. Now, unfortunately, that means we don't need you. Just <laughs> <And, laughs> that's the end of it. So, I, so I, I mean, I don't want to spoil a film for anyone, but there's a, a famous film that has not a dissimilar conceit, where, uh -huh. where um, someone someone is kind of performs a magic trick. Uh -huh. <laughs> that might spoil it for someone. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Easy. So, yeah. It's always, I, it was I, always a. Uh... Always something that I considered, you know, whenever uh, you, they, they used the, the transporters in Star Trek, mm. it was always a concern. Well, uh, McCoy had that concern. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not the same person when you leave. <laughs> um, but I, I typed up this little idea, and Andy Diggle said, "Oh, that's great. Just send that to me, and I'll, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll run it as a future shock." And I was like, "Oh no, no, I wanted to be an artist. <laughs> I wanted to be a writer. I didn't, I didn't want to write any. I wanted to be an artist. It's like I, you know." It's like it's like you're walking along to do the high, you know, you're walking along to do the high dive, and you trip on a banana peel, and you do a backflip, and somebody goes, "Oh, you've won gold for gymnastics." <laughs> and you're going, "That's not, that's not what I was trying to do. That's not, I mean, it's, it's not what I was going for." So I, I cocked it up. Though. Like when I sat down and wrote it, I had no real experience in writing a script, and I just I wrote this stream of conscience gibberish that was kind of too long and not very good, but. Um, you know that was a long time ago. So, so that would that would have been that would have been my break into two thousand eight. Would it would have been as a writer more than a more than an artist? So. Well, I mean, talking about the artist side of things, you know, you you'd mentioned obviously working with Garth recently on Land and the Eagle from Aftershock mm. Comics. And one thing I wanted to ask as an artist is, what's your opinion on the premium plus size format or silly yeah. size, as Keith likes to call it? I mean, Land and Eagle was of course released in this bigger format. Do you find the extra space as an artist liberating? Or do you prefer to stick to the common comics format and sizing? Or does it make I, well, any difference? It, I mean, in terms of drawing, it doesn't really make any difference to me. I'm drawing everything digitally now. So essentially, somebody goes, it's this size. And I type a size into the computer and it goes, here's the document. I go, okay, I'll just draw on that then. Um, so I don't, I'm not paying an awful lot of attention to the size of it. Um, I, I was a little shocked when I saw it. I was like, wow, this is really big. <laughs> this is, whoa, this is this doesn't fit in a comic box. Yeah. Um, 
And I, I know I talked to, I think I talked to John John McMahon over in um, Forbidden Planet and said, oh, this book is coming out. And he said, oh, I didn't know anything about that one. Yeah, it'd be great. And he says, I think it's DC black label size, which is the same sort of size of format. And he just went, oh. So, <laughs> so I know universally it's loathed by retailers. Um, I would disagree. I love the format. I think oh it okay. is. Do you very, love it as a retailer or as a fan? I like it for both. I think it's it feels like a special product to sell to people. Mm. I think it feels very cinematic. Magazine size storage boxes do exist, Keith. You know, not everything has to go on a standard size comic box. But I I get the feeling that like the comics industry is weird to me because writers will always get more credit than artists. Yet it's a visual medium. Writers can be more prolific than artists because it takes longer to draw a page than it does to write a page. So when you get something that the artist can be the star of the show, as in a large premium plus format, I'm all for that as both a fan and a retailer. Yeah, I mean, I want my work being produced as small a size possible so no one can complain about it. Just something postage stamp size, that would do, that would do me. No, <laughs> I, I genuinely take it back at the size of it. I, I think, as I mean, it's, and it is lovely, it's a lovely looking book. I think the... I had a couple of problems with it. Um, one was that there's nothing on the spine at all, which apparently was sort of a real, it was a, essentially a limitation they tried before. And it's too hard to get it exactly on the spine whenever you're trying to print something. Mm -hmm. So it would have been nice to have a number so you could see them. Like if they're on a bookshelf, you get four black spines. That's it. That's, and you don't know what it is. Um, and the other thing as well, which was a bit frustrating, was when I was trying to tell people they were oversized but also they had 40 pages. So they were not just, it wasn't just that this is an oversized book with 20 pages. It's an oversized, oversized book. It's like, it's like oversized over, square. Say, oversized square. And then you go, oh, square. It's good. Well, it's sort of square. But what I mean, <laughs> what I mean is there's more, just more pages in it. Cause it's like, it's a four issue miniseries, which you assume is going to be two, four, six, eight, 80 pages, but it's 160 pages because it's, 40 pages an issue so it's a big chunky read and i think i think i mean it's more expensive so it was, I guess it was about 7.99 or something per issue but it's a big chunky read you know um and it is kind of novel structured so it's 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 i think you need to sit down and read it so i i mean i hope people liked it i, I know there's some big set pieces in the artwork that that um garth had in big some big double page spreads I hope I carried them off. Um, it, it's difficult because I'm not naturally an artist that does gore and violence. I know it's hard to believe doing a Garth comic, but <laughs> it's, it's not my natural kind of uh, thing. So I have to kind of figure a way for that to, to work for me. Uh, and some of the scenes in it are kind of quite horrible, but they're, they're deliberately so. They're there to show a reader that this is what the thing was like. It's not it's not where having Jolly Jeeps in the jungle. Yeah, it's not glorified in any way. I mean, that's the danger is, is you do a piece of cool action. You think, well, oh, that looks pretty cool. and But then you do, you kind of go, ah, oh, come on, look, at they're giving it to the bad guys. Woo. Uh, whereas, you know, this thing has people's, not just people's head being chopped off, but like from the from their mouths and it's kind of gross. And you think that's not nice. And any, even though that's the bad guy, that's still not, you know, that's not a nice thing to happen. And, that, you know, so and I, and I just kind of it's a morally ambiguous book because the war itself was morally ambiguous and the characters had a certain ambiguity about them. And um, like a lot of real life things, these things are more complicated um, than than you'd want them to be in an action adventure story, you know. So but that's I mean, I think people know what they're getting when they're getting a war, a war book by Garth. They know it's going to be something that treats the subject with the kind of 
with a certain amount of reverence, a certain amount of respect, and but also um, you're not going to, Garth's not going to turn his eyes away from the horrible stuff. You know, that's mm. the thing that he doesn't do. Um, but at the same time, unlike his humor books where it's all, where they will do something horrific to someone for the sake of a laugh, that's not what this is about. You know, this is yeah. those those moments are horrible, but they're they're horrible because that's what that's what it was like. You know, the uh, the the collected edition of that is out on the thirty first of August. Um, and is it out uh, as soon as that? Yeah, a couple I of weeks. Believe weeks. so. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Well, there, uh, there are any wee, any wee extras in there, PJ? Any wee character I designs? I honestly have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I haven't been. I can't remember. I, I think Garth has an essay in it. Um, I think, because uh, I, yeah, I think I remember seeing a PDF of it a while ago. But Garth, I think, has a little essay in there. Um, and Garth, Garth's essays are always worth reading. Like they, on on the war stuff, they're always really fascinating. He really knows what he's talking about, and he can really he can communicate it so well. Because first and foremost, he's a a writer of entertainment. So whereas maybe a lot of stuff a lot of the stuff could be very dry garth can tell you stuff they, these 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 things in a way that you want to read it you know you, you you will want to read it so um yeah so i think there's an essay in there i don't think there's anything fancy in it um in terms of artwork wise but it'll be a big i mean i'm, I'm not sure i'm imagining it's the same size as the as the oversized comics so it'll be quite big and quite nice i think hopefully yeah the dc black label editions are lovely i think the hard covers and again they form a nice collection on the bookshelf which is this always is, important this- as a comic fan this I think is a soft cover, which is slightly annoying to me. But I, I would have liked a hard cover, but yeah, <laughs> I can't. I can't make these calls. Well, um, well, one thing that was a hard cover was you had mentioned it before, which was string bags. Of course, again with mm. Garth. I mean, what what are you attracted to war comics in the same way as Garth is, or is it just a case of this just sounds like a cool project? Do you have that same sort of you know interest in the subject certainly as Garth does? I, I'll, I'll be completely honest with you. I'm attracted to any kind of work. Um, <laughs> that's fair um, uh, no actually generally the war stuff I, I, the, the war stuff I do with Garth Garth's a good, really good writer and he asks I, I haven't been asked by many other people to do war stuff so I don't know, I mean I've done a couple of other war things um, that have been little short things and um, for the most part it's only Garth that's ever really asked and I'm never, you know like there's a, I know a dozen artists that would chop their, you know, your hand off to get to work with Garth in any capacity so, um, but I also, you know I like that medium, I like those stories um, uh, I was a huge, as we were talking off off air, I, maybe on air, I don't know, um, I was a huge war comic fan as a kid, I read uh, well, not battle. Battle was like the harder kids would read battle. I was a slightly softer kid, so I read Warlord. So, um, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, this is a, depend on your age. You'll understand these references. But w- battle was to Warlord what um, what uh, multicolor swap shop was, or what what Tiz was was the multicolor swap shop. It's like it's, uh, you know, or that's the, a reference. Or the, or the Beano is to the dandy. It's like one is one is a kind of slightly safe middle class kid favorite, and the other one is a kind of working class, uh, you know, down in the streets kind of thing. And the, although weirdly we were work, I mean, we were here's how working class we were. I didn't think. Oh no, I was talking to my brother about this, and I, and he said he genuinely didn't think they invented toilet roll until he was about eleven. Because we used to use newspaper. <laughs> That's how working class we were. 
when I was a kid growing up. Um, so, but at the same time, I had middle class aspirations. So it was the dandy. It was uh, Saturday morning swap shop, multicolored swap shop, and it was uh, warlord with Lord um, Peter Flint. I think was his name. Who was who was the warlord and a fat kind of uh, considered a coward by everyone that he met during the day and by night was performing top secret missions, which is exactly what I was like when I was a kid. <laughs> I didn't uh, I didn't get uh, didn't get to read Battle until towards the end of its run and then it was absorbed by Eagle, I recall. Oh right, God, yeah, that would have been it. But Eagle, even Eagle then, Battle, I think, yeah. So were you reading Battle Action Force at that point then? Uh, it... Yeah, yeah, a bit of yeah, that. Battle Action, of yeah, Battle Action Force. At that stage, Battle was, was not even a shadow of itself, I, I no, don't think. No, definitely um, not. That, that said, like, I don't know if you've seen, so uh, with Garth recently, um, Garth with uh, Rebellion, the 2000 EV publishers, have, have launched the Battle Action special. Which yes. Is essentially a kind of Garth bringing all these concepts back into the 21st century uh, and I did a the Sarge strip with, Gar with Garth yes. for that um, and you know with a bit of luck we might get doing more we'll, we'll see oh that'd be lovely it was nice to see nice to see Johnny Red again as well and, uh, yeah, yeah. and some of those some of those characters yeah. um, Garth ultimately would love to see far more of that come out you know I mean I know I know the boys gets all the attention but for Garth it's always battle and and the war stuff, you know. Uh, and you, you've also you mentioned already that you also worked on Soul Plumber for DC Comics yeah, recently, yeah. and you you stepped in to help whenever fellow local artist John McRae was struck with long COVID, I believe. Yeah, yeah, John, yeah. I mean, long COVID. Long COVID's a funny thing. It sort of it, it can give you a sort of brain fog, which is just a sort of you're tired all the time, and it can be a little more difficult to concentrate. And comics, I like for me, and I think for a lot of artists. Comics have these stages when you're drawing a comic. One is thumbnails where you're reading a script and there's a lot, you've got to pay attention, you've got to see what's happening. So you're doing the thumbnails and working out what's going where and what's happening in the script. So there's a lot of thinking involved in that. And then the next stage is you're basically uh, penciling those thumbnails. And that's, again, reading the script, making sure you're penciling the right thing. And a lot of problem solving. It's a lot of, if, if that guy's hand is there, what is where's this other person's arm and how does that interact with this and how do I read lead the reader from that step to this uh -huh. step to that uh -huh. step um, and then the third stage is like oh shit I'll turn the TV on and watch some telly while I'm inking this this is easy this is the fun part this is the just you know going over this stuff so John was really struggling with the kind of layouts part of it and the thumbnails and penciling and and now John and I've done some stuff before together where I've I've done some pencils for him because John would be over so John's based in Birmingham now but he would be over in Northern Ireland quite frequently and when he is he usually we pop around to my house and we'll have a natter about the old days and stuff because I've known him since I was about 18 mm. um, and you know we'll He'll usually have some for me to scan and, and so on. And he'd been over a while ago. Uh, this is before COVID even kicked off. And he'd kind of, his deadlines were a bit tight. And I was, I wouldn't say it was at a loose end, but it was like, for me, some aspects, if, if I'm not drawing finished comics, if I'm drawing sort of loose pencils, I am lightning fast. Like I'm much faster than a lot of other artists. I mean, yesterday I penciled, and reasonably tightly, I penciled four four and a half pages um and i can you know that's not untypical um so i said to john well, well do you what if i pencil one of these pages while you're inking one and then at least the pencil's done mm -hmm. and he went okay it's a funny little dance you've got to do because you don't know if you're going to work even though we've known each other for decades 
And even though we get on great, and even though there's a certain amount of simpatico in, in our art styles, we are still very, very different. And mm. you still don't know if you're going to get on with someone when, when you do that. It's like, if I do that, I, from an inker's perspective, it's like if I do that, he draws a face, and I don't like it. I'm going to have to draw all over his face. He's going to get shirty with me because mm. because of that. And uh, you know, so there's all these little you know micro judgments you've got to make. And um, I said, no, I'll I'll pencil. And I can't remember. It might have been it might have been the what's your man with the big with the flute and arrow that he whistles. <laughs> Yondu. It was Yondu. Yondu yes. Uh-huh. Uh, it might have been a page of Yondu. I said, well, I'll pencil. I'll just loosely, I won't even tightly pencil because I, the way John works is John will pencil in scraps and, you know, he'll assemble a page from notebook scraps and other things. And then he will photocopy that typically. And then he'll, he'll kind of put it in a light box and ink over it. That's not how I work. The way I work is I, there's a page I've got to draw from there, like a computer, like all the way down, like a printer. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's actually, that I think is one of the things that makes it faster for me that I'm not kind of, consider i'm considering it in total um so anyway i penciled the page and he inked it and it was great and it was like oh it was easy that was really it was fun and i liked seeing the page and when i looked at the inked page it was like i can't see me in that and it just looks like john yet if i overlaid a pencil of my pages it's like oh no but no i did draw that <laughs> oh no there's john that's really weird it's like both of them are there but like it's clearly john's work but it's also you know, clearly, like when you take John's stuff off, it's like clearly I've drawn that. So it's kind of it's really weird, and it's lovely. It's like I mean, it's endlessly fascinating. It's like when you've discovered a, a, an optical illusion, and and you're kind of oh, this is really oh. Um, so I did a I did a few page, more pages of Yondu for him, uh, and then I did a couple of other little projects for him uh, where I was kind of penciling it, and we discovered a kind of sweet spot where I don't pencil as tightly as I even would for me. I pencil looser than that. And because I'm penciling so loosely, I can do like five or six pages a day nearly of that kind of thing. And that's the thinking part for John. That's the long, that's nearly the longest yeah, part yeah. for him. Whereas if he gets to slap some ink down, he just gets to go bonkers with the ink and do whatever he wants to do and go, there's a face, I'll draw it. Like, ah, yeah, that's, you know. So he gets to kind of do the stuff he really enjoys. Um, and we just, so when, it, when he did Soul Plumber, he asked me, could I pencil a couple of pages for him? No, oh, and okay. And I wasn't sure what he wanted. So I kind of tightly penciled him. And when I saw them, it was like, oh, he didn't want me to tightly pencil him. You can see where he's kind of varied. There's no point. In, you uh-huh. know, if you draw a figure standing in a certain angle, that's fine. If you draw a figure and then you start noodling where the wrinkles of his hand is, John's going to obliterate those because they're yeah, not yeah. they're not in his style anyway. He's going to add little nobbins and gubbins and all sorts of things. So um, first first issue i penciled two pages second issue i did rough layouts for about 10 or 12 pages i think by the third issue i laid it all out and pencil and inked half of it and then by the fourth i think i inked half and fifth and sixth i think i inked a good chunk of them i might have been half for one of them and less than half for the other but i kind of from issue two or three i was doing all the layouts on all of them um and and it meant john was able to get work done because he was really kind of struggling it also meant like they the guys right that were doing a podcast and they do it's a really popular podcast and they also um uh they also do tours with it with their podcast so um in, in the states and so they were on tour when they were writing the scripts so i i kind of 
my job was basically to help John meet these deadlines. So, you know, John could do the work and, and keep a steady income flowing in, which is what you're trying to do when you're drawing comics. Uh, and DC hadn't, I'd done... I'd already done a 12-page strip for DC with Garth, um, with um, what is it? It was it was Dark Side meets uh, oh Garth's Bator, Dark Side versus Bator in a drinking contest of all things. Um, but DC didn't know who I was. I mean, that was essentially someone going, "Can you? Um, who's going to draw this?" And Garth went, "What about PJ?" And me going, "Yeah, I can draw this." And they went, "Okay, we don't care. It's Garth. As long as Garth's right, we don't care. He's drawn it." Um, whereas this was like they kind of went pj can pencil these and you know he can help me get this deadline on track mm-hmm. and then and then in the end what i was doing was helping the diet not only helping the deadline get on track but actually getting the deadline in early and making sure when when the writers were running late i was still running early and then uh not only that but kind of delivering files in a format that the editors could go oh, we understand what's going on here, which is kind of a godsend, you know, <laughs> editors have so much on their plate that when John and I were, because we were kind of, John has this thing where he will do, he, if you give John a 20-page script, he might do page two, and then he might do page 15, and then page one, and then page 11, and then page nine, and just he'll whatever order he does them and it's it's because he's looking at it going i'd like to draw that and that and that and that and and then i'll do the rest at the end whereas i am like there's an element of chaos to john there's an element of order to me which which means that when i get a script i'm like on page one page two page Uh three page four page five so they get it in order (laughs) you know so i was doing layouts for john and saying there's the pages john whatever ones you want to ink you you take those and ink them and i'll ink i'll ink around you i'll do whatever you're not doing Uh um and because because of that, it meant that I had to kind of tell the and I was trying to mimic John's style to an extent when I was inking the pages. I didn't want to be too jarring. Um, I think yeah, I mean I I'm pretty sure anyone could tell which ones John did and which ones I did. But um, I think for clarity, I kind of went to the editors. Here's a spreadsheet with all the correct pages and who did what, so you know. So when it comes to the invoicing, you'll know who's getting paid, uh, <laughs> and that just made their job so much easier. So I went from DC not knowing who I was to me being favorite son for a little bit because i was so helpful and useful and great you know so that's the be easy to get on with and be fast ah uh, <laughs> yes techniques and my methodology <laughs> two out of three yeah two out of three two out of three is all you need my friend all you need you know? I, love, I love the idea that uh two northern irish creators did a short story on a drinking contest <laughs> yes uh, yeah, yeah where in the world did that inspiration come from i have to ask <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it was it was the um it was the DC Doomed and the Damned um, yeah, it's Halloween a special. Halloween special. They always do a sort of 80 to 100 page anthology. Yeah. 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 And I think they asked Garth, can you do something here? And Garth went, like, I almost no interest in DC superhero stuff. But what if I do a super a drinking contest between Beator and Darkseid? And I got the, like, that's the funny thing. Like, after I did, I did that strip, and there's a bit in it where, so Darkseid is goaded into having a drinking contest. He's in the, um, that bar, Mooney's bar, is it Mooney's bar? Uh, in the bar, in in um, uh, thingy, in uh, Hitman, Hitman's bar, uh. Uh, in the bar, and he's having a quiet, solitary drink on his own, and somebody turns up and says, oh, oh look, it's Darkseid, oh, and Darkseid's called, what is it with you people? Oh, you people, uh, and then he kind of, oh, Beethoven goes, drink, and the, 
gets baited into, uh, and he kind of goes, "No, I'm not. I'm I'm dark side. I'm not gonna. Ha- I'm not gonna get into a drinking contest. That's ridiculous." And then he has an imagined scene where he meets all of the DC superheroes, and you know, Wonder Woman's going to see him. He wouldn't enter that drinking contest. <laughs> what a wuss! Uh, and uh, the uh, so I got to draw all of them. I got to draw Superman and Batman. I got to draw Batman poking his head through the door, going "Drink, drink, drink, drink." <laughs> um, and I thought to myself, if that's the only work I ever do for DC, I will be very happy. It's a very that high is, bar. Yeah, it's a, a very bad yeah, pun I'm intended. Not going to do better than that. So <laughs> after after um, Soul Plumber, though, I got I did a little. I think it's a 12-page short for, um, there's a thing, Harlequin, uh, the Harlequin TV show, uh, the animated series has a, a, they're doing a little spin-off comic, which is, a ba- which is just about some of the ancillary bad guys. Mm-hmm. So I got to do a strip with the Joker and King Shark and um, Dr. Psycho, I think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, and that was fun, you know, but it had to be drawn in an animated style, so it wasn't quite me. You know, it was like, yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, 20 years ago, my God, I'd have bitten someone's head off to, to do a gig like that. Now I'm like going, it's a bit frustrating. I'm having to draw it. <laughs> yeah. how, how things change. How the arrogance of the yeah, old age fades in. Um, so anyway, anyway. So that's coming out soon. I'm not sure when that's out, but that's coming out soon. Well, I mean, all these collected editions coming out, you know, you've got Soul Plumber. I think it's scheduled for around the, the start of October. I think we were talking yeah. about this before, the frustration for you being at... Uh, it's New York Comic Con, isn't it? And it's Yeah, I'm, go- I'm going to be in New York, which is in October... It's like the 4th uh, or 5th, first, isn't it? 5th, 6th and 7th, Literally yeah. the week before. Yeah, yeah, it's just so annoying. But I know I, I'm going to be doing a sign-in in New York with... Um, uh, with Aftershock, who because that book will be out then at Aftershock, mm-hmm. so hopefully Garth will be along to that as well. He, he's based in New York, so I know he's going to be at New York. Although I know he hates the convention center with a, a burning passion, so I know who wouldn't who would blame him? Like, it's, a, it's a hellhole, but it's a, you know I have a table. I'll have a table there. So if anyone's at New York Comic Con, come and say hi. Um, so yeah, yeah, it'd be lovely if it was out at the same. I mean, it would have been. I, I'm sometimes. I think to myself, what somebody like some sort of thing is playing tricks on me when I do a whole bunch of work and it all comes out in the same week. It's like you do like for one for the start of this year, I had two books out every month for the first four months. Two books, <laughs> one was forty pages and the other was twenty. Like I had Lion and the Eagle and Soul Plumber for the first two or three months. And then an issue of um, uh, Time After Time came out around the same time as well. And it, I mean, it was the same similar thing happened with 2008. At one point, I was in 2008 and the magazine at the same time. Like, and people are going, boy, you must draw really fast. It's just the way the schedule is kind of... But I'd rather it was spaced through the years so people could see my work all... Like, yeah, it looks, all looks more prolific and it's sustained rather than Yeah, you can, yeah people forget who you are very, very quickly. You disappear so quickly. So, sure, it's nice uh, to be popular. It would be nice. It, it would be nice. I wouldn't know, but it would be nice. <laughs> well, you never know. Your, uh, your comp compies might come through Soul Plumber just in time for New York Comic Con. Yeah, while I'm while I'm in New York. While you're in New York, you'll you'll get your wife to send you a picture. Going, these just arrived for you. Be like, oh, no, no, could have signed and sold these at New York Comic Con. I'm going to Montenegro the month before as well, so I'll have nothing out by then. I think there's a, a book coming out called Department K, 
which is a collection of stuff I've done for 2008 as well. Mm-hmm. It's coming. I think it's coming out a bit later than that, but it it should be out soon as well. So yes, there's a load of stuff coming out. Well, that's okay um, because all these things can all come out and it can all coalesce into a perfect storm where you just do a signing at our store. So it's all good. I would be happy to. I think I've promised Mal one in his tour though, that, and, I, <laughs> and I don't know. It's really difficult to know what the etiquette is in these things. It's like. Should I, I'm more than happy to do a sign in, in I, I'd love to do a sign in your store. Not more than happy, that's stupid. I would love to do a sign in your store. Um, I, I just feel guilty that I've offered my you one. Know, I think it's Catholic guilt. It's just kind of piling in to me going, you, you're doing one that week. You can't do two. Every, uh, every, every sign in that, uh, that Alan has, has had, uh, the guys, Mal and the guys from Forbidden Planet have, uh, have been invited been- and in some cases come along. No, I, I, I also, and I actually also helped us publicize. Mal's one of the nicest guys in the world. I mean, he he was yeah. even carrying posters for Coffee and Heroes in Forbidden Planet, like when we had signings <laughs> well, for Declan. I think, and yeah, I think you're doing different things. I mean, you're doing different things there, yeah. and and I think sometimes um, I don't want to speak for Mal, but I I feel like sometimes because Talisman has become Forbidden Planet, I think, and and. And Forbidden Planet's got a different headquarters, and it is like it's got a bottom floor taken up with toys and figures and stuff. It's become a different over the years. It's become a different thing, and it it doesn't have the same social aspect that smaller stores often do. Yeah. You know, um, you know, people go in to buy their toys, and and, and they're already in their little social groups. Um, and 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 I think that's how a bigger store has to sustain itself. It has to sustain itself with people already in groups coming in and buying lots of things and then leaving again. Um, whereas smaller stores, I think, are kind of heart and soul where those groups form, you know? Um, and and so they are they are kind of different different kind of animals. Uh, but also, I mean, you, obviously you do coffee, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, the coffee just adds to that social aspect because I, you know, I, I, I don't like to get egotistical myself about it, but, you know, I aim for Coffee and Heroes to be like Talisman. You know, that was mm. my first exposure to comics. It was, you know, like-minded people coming, hanging out, debating mm. who would win in a fight between, you know, these characters saying why this company's better than that. But, 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 yeah, but in a good way. <laughs> but in a good way, you know what I mean? So it's, uh, I like to think that we invoke the spirit of Talisman. That's what we've always aimed for. And mm-hmm. I think it's just coincidence that we're based very close to where talisman was you know yeah so like a little like a little phoenix arising out of those ashes yeah. a new a new form has formed a new thing <laughs> evolved into, um, uh, speaking yeah. of uh speaking of of a, of a new thing and evolving into have you got any other upcoming projects in the pipeline there's, you'd like to a, tell us about comic there's a comic convention happening up in lisbon i think in september yeah it's the, a con center yeah, the, is it Econ or Icon? I've I mean, been calling it Icon I'll, Center. I'll step in very quickly here and just say I loathe to call that a Comic Con. It's a yes. pop culture con, which is absolutely fine. Yeah, yeah. But I get frustrated when they lead with, here's these guys who were in Vampire Diaries and here's this yeah. guy who was in Look, the background I of the agree. Star Wars scene for I, two minutes. I agree with you, but unfortunately that battle is lost. I mean, the, 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 in the public conscience, Comic Con means pop culture con. Uh, there's there's it doesn't it doesn't and it's a bit like um uh the alan moore never really you know the the story alan moore never likes the term graphic novel he'd rather just call big comics but he's kind of accepted Mm -hmm. that that's what people call them now you you know the the battleground has shifted you know no we cannot go down we must fight you cannot you cannot (laughs) you can't unfortunately roll back to uh, like a decade and a half or whatever it is of the big bang theory you know it's just (sighs) That's just not 
which is which is why I think people think of comic cons as as the big pop culture things because of that TV show. Yeah. Uh-huh. But I mean, it's the same. It's similar to the, the the reality is I I've been going to comic conventions since about maybe ninety seven or something, and there was a brief period, and I say brief, it didn't seem brief at the time, a brief period where there were two conventions in the UK, mm-hmm. and they were you know they were comic conventions, but they you know there was two of them, and then eventually one. And it was that these things were dying, and the only thing that was that was popping up in their place were, you know, the MCMs, uh, um, you know, which, which had started branding themselves as comic conventions. They weren't comic conventions; they were pop culture conventions, and they had, you know, and oftentimes if you were doing comics, it kind of you had to invite yourself, which is what I had to do for this Lisbeth one: <laughs> is invite myself. Hi, I um, do comics. <laughs> yeah, I do comics. I mean, I, I'm I'm based in Northern Ireland. It's easy for me to get up there. Just hop in my car. I'll be there. You just have to give me a table and a pass. <laughs> <laughs> you don't even have to pay me. I'm easy. Um, so, and so, but the thing is, like, that's where a certain section of the audience is going to be. That's where you're going to meet new people who have never seen your stuff before. That's where you're going to meet. You know, I think when I went to, and and the, it's those little moments that um, you can't. There's no way you can sort of uh, anticipate. So I went to uh, MCM London one year, and it was dreadful. Um, they they poked us in the back in the section that was cold. There was no footfall. We were facing a wall away from the main thing. You had to go out of your way to find us. Like there was no two ways about it. Um, it was just dreadful. And a dad and a son came along, and the son was looking at my Judge Dread artwork and. As ever in these circumstances, you have to assume the dad's a 2080 reader and the kid's been dragged along because his dad doesn't want to look like he's a comic reader still. <laughs> um, so I kind of went, oh, that's that's Judge Dredd from 2080. And his dad goes, oh, he knows. I'm going, oh, okay, well, I drew that in uh, that issue of 2080 there and I pointed to the issue. And the, his dad goes, oh, he knows that too. I went, oh, okay. So, so he actually he, he copied the artwork from that page on his art project for school. I went, did he? I went, yeah, yeah. So then he was looking at the page. I says, I'll sell you it cheap. Okay, I marked it up 20%. Um, <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I did sell him it, but I didn't sell him it cheap. So, but that, that that's what I mean. It's like, there's no way I would have anticipated that happening. And I, I don't necessarily know if it was a comic convention, he would have gone to it, mm-hmm. you know? I, I, so, so you can't sort of ignore... I think I think you've got to accept these big wheels exist and that um, comics, as much as it pains me to say this, comics are a tiddly little market, you know. I mean, it's not, it's, I mean, tiddly in terms of the other big pop cultures, not necessarily tiddly on its own terms, but uh, in terms of, you know, the behemoths of, of uh, uh, film or TV or, you know, or like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or, or whatever it is, whatever whatever the current kind of uh, vampire TV show is at the moment, they are a tiddler compared to all of that. But that, that just means that we can slip into the cracks and, you know, have a great old time and meet other people who are also kind of feeling like they're swept up in the, in the, the giants and realizing 
yeah, I want something more than that. I want something different from that. And then, and that's where they find comics. So I, I, I've made my peace with the idea that comics are ne- never going to be the mass medium they once were, maybe. Uh, I mean, they might still do. Who knows? I mean, weirder things have happened. Like, to me, it's very strange that TV chefs are lauded. I, like, I can't, <laughs> I can't wrap my head around that we're, we're in the physical, we're in the, the multiverse of, of, of the universes that there exists out there. We're in the particular multiverse where chefs are celebrities. That's the weirdest thing. But, but you know, but there's no particular reason for it. It just seems to be the case. So, you know, but comics is not. You know, I remember going to uh, back when Easton's existed in Belfast, going into Easton's, and there were three magazines about cart fishing, and there were no magazines about making comics. And that's when I realized that... <laughs> It's a tiny, tiny niche. Is that when you but took a break like, from comics? Is it? <laughs> no, 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 no. That's when. I, that's when I, I was working a day job, though. So I was very much not going to give it up for comics. That's for sure. But um, <laughs> it's a niche. I, I mean, I've absolutely been very, very fortunate that I've been able to make a, a good living at it, and I've met lo- lots of lovely people. And everybody's into it. You know, I, I very rarely meet someone that, that isn't really great in sound and stuff. But um, I have to accept that the medium itself is a niche, and and it, it's you know, it's only people only talk about the big things like Sandman because there's a TV series. You know, that's it's only in the news if there's a TV series. It's only on, uh, on everyone's lips because there's a TV series. But having said that, if there's a TV series, there's now lovely collections of it again. You know, so and and then if there are lovely collections of it and you do a nice. Uh, horror type book you can go like if you like the sandman you'll like this so you can you know uh-huh. you can use that you can use that um gary so. rhodes was the tv chef with the spiky hair that's there him. we that's are him. That's there we are it took a wee while but we got there all <laughs> comes full circle this is all part of the plan though thankfully there's nobody who looks like that anymore so mal's just mal himself <laughs> exactly <laughs> But uh, we'll, we'll, for a few, uh, few wee random questions just to finish off okay. with, uh, you've obviously been very, very generous for your time, but these are all really random, so uh, you, can, and, uh, you can tell us what stories you like here. And we, okay. we should say, we should say, it's really great, to, we forgot to mention earlier on, this is actually uh, one of two variants of our 200th episode. Uh, so it's great to have, uh, I mean, great look, to have such an appropriate guest I, I, for... I, uh, I have to say, uh, having seen what variant covers did comics during the <laughs> I'm not sure... I'm not sure I'm all for variant uh, podcast episodes, but... Well, don't worry, you're cover A because you're first recorded okay. and you'll be happy okay. to know that variant B is Garth next week. <laughs> oh, is it? Okay, okay, okay. But, uh, no, the first question is a bit of a bit of a left-field one, but it was just something I came across in my research I thought was uh, quite interesting. So what can you tell us about being banned by Apple, no less, for violent content? <laughs> yes, all right, so the... The short, no, there is no short version of this. The, the, <laughs> gist, the, the gist of this is that um, having worked in IT and having, you know, loved comics for years and years and years uh, and worked professionally as a comic artist, in about 2007, Apple's iPhone came out. And the moment Apple's iPhone came out, I looked at this and thought, this is a perfect device for reading comics. Now, maybe not full-size American comics, but in the UK, we used to, you know, I'm sure you've read Commando comics. We're used to different page sizes. Mm-hmm. And I th- thought well you could make a comic on this there's no reason why a comic couldn't be a single panel or two small panels on this size of phone uh, and so i tried little experiments with web pages and stuff to see if it would work and it sort of it worked i mean at, at that point the the iphone wasn't as high resolution as it is now um, but it was still pretty decent resolution it was higher resolution than a computer screen and it was in your hand that was the important thing it was in your hand you know you could comfortably read it 
if you had the right kind of reader, but there was no app support at that point. So Apple then announced, right, we're going to allow people to put apps on the iPhone. And I was at a wedding party with a friend of mine, a wedding friend of mine, and he sat me down beside a guy who was a, a programmer, an Apple uh, programmer, and he'd been looking at doing children's books. And I said, look, I have an idea for uh, a comic. Like, you could do comics on the iPhone, and here's how it would work. And I kind of set out exactly how it would work. And it was pretty much, you know, swipe left to right. Um, but I'd, I'd extra features. It would be things like if you swipe down, you'd be able to go through layers of artwork. So you'd be able to see, you'd be able to remove the color and get the line art. And then you'd be able to remove the uh, lettering. And you'd be able to move the line art and replace it with pencils. And you'd be able to do all that by just swiping down. So you'd, you'd have your artwork swipe left and right to get to each panel. Swipe down to see the pencils. Swipe left. And you'd keep reading it with just the pencils. And I said, no. And you could even you could have multiple language translations because you could replace the word balloons. You could just go press button, get uh, French word balloons. Or another button, get English word balloons. And I said, this would be easy. Because having a programming and IT, quite an IT literate background, I knew... Like one of the difficulties people have with programmers is they they know they sort of have a notion of what they want, but they don't know how to achieve it, and they don't know if a programmer can do it. And then whenever a programmer starts doing it, they go, "Oh, I've got a hundred different ideas." <laughs> that's because you, because you've done that now. I've got a hundred different ways this can go. And so a programmers, and that's why program that's why projects end up spiraling into massively expensive things. Whereas I knew exactly what I wanted and I knew how it could be done. I even down to things like file formats and stuff and how you could maximize that. And so uh, uh, Phil Orr, who's a lovely fella, he sat and we spent, a, he's, I think we spent a week programming uh, a phone thing. Now, I, I needed content because I wasn't thinking of, there was no, App Store was just new. There was no uh, in-app purchases that didn't exist. There was only the App Store. So it was going to be a comic in the comic reader. And I didn't really have a comic that would fit. So I um, had been doing stuff with Al Ewing. And we'd been talking about doing a small press thing or doing something, a web comic or something. And I said, look, Al, I'm thinking of doing this. Do you want to do something like this? He went, well, I've got a story idea. They had this thing called Murder Drome. And Murder Drome is, um, Murder Drome was, it's like a spoof of the 70s boys comics about um, ultra-violent sports. And like the sport basically was called Murder Drome. And the way you scored a goal was by decapitating your enemy and throwing their head into a basket. That scored, <laughs> you know, it's completely over the top. And it, and it, and a spoof, it was like over the top, ridiculously, you know, ridiculous. So it was kind of, you couldn't, um, that, that's what it was. It was just silly over the top. So I, we, we, I did the artwork for it, line art, colors, everything, lettering, and we made the app and it worked exactly the way I said it, you know, you swipe left and right and, and so on. So I put a video demo of this on YouTube and this was, I can't remember, 2008 or so. And I think within a week with like 40,000 views, which is not big now, but was big then. Um, and when my friend came back from honeymoon, I said, "Hey, while you've been on honeymoon, this is what we've done. We've done this." And he was uh, he was uh, an Apple guy as well. And he went, "Well, look," and I said, well, "We want you involved because we need me for ideas for comics. Uh, Phil was going to program it, and then uh, Matt, who, who, uh, you can do everything else. Look after the company. Do do everything. You know, because I think I think this might be big." And Matt wrote a press release that basically, no, we, we submitted it to the Apple Store and about a week later, Apple came back to us. And so again, early days of the App Store, there was nothing really on there. Apple came back and said, look, we don't, 
we, this is too violent. <laughs> can you can you tone the violence down and resubmit the app? And I was like, oh, well, it's called Murder Drone, and it's a future sport where you have to decapitate the other player. <laughs> I don't, there's no way to tone the violence down because the violence is intrinsic to it. If you tone the violence down on it, what you're left with is a horrible comic about people being violently beaten up. There's, it, it, like, it, it's so over the top; it can't be anything but funny. Um, so we, so we, Matt put out a press release saying Apple have banned this app. Now, as it happened, because it was the early days of the Apple App Store, and because it, uh, America has a obsession with the First Amendment. That made major news worldwide. Like we we were interviewed by CNN and all sorts, um, and then we were contacted by uh, NBC. And this was all within the space of three weeks, two or three weeks. It's not like we went from here. I have an idea for this to holy shit, we're talking to CNN about this, and like two or three weeks later, we also did. Um, Matt put us in for an entrepreneur contest. Said we'll enter this. If we win this, you get ten grand. We'll use that for a bit of seed money, um, for because it was we'd started having big plans. Then this was this was going beyond being a silly little comic, and was like, oh no, I think we've got something here. We've got a big thing here. And I did some back of the envelope calculations about, and don't forget, comicsology didn't exist. Um, mm-hmm. I think there was one other guy that came out very quickly after or, or before we did because ours was banned. Um, and so he'd obviously had a similar thought about comics on the iPhone. Um, and so there was it was a two horse race at that point uh, with no comicsology, no Amazon, certainly. And um, I did this uh, with the entrepreneur contest and I wrote a presentation and the presentation I went, here's all the drawbacks of ordering comics. If you buy comics, you have to know what you want three months in advance. You know this. This is like if you if you go into a comic shop and say, I want to buy this comic. They go, certainly, sir, it's coming out in three months. You go, okay, I'll order it then. And then you come back the next month and say, what about issue two? And you go, well, you've got to order it. It's three months in advance. You go, well, I haven't read issue one yet. Yeah, no, but you've still got to order it. And then so by the time you get reading issue one, issue three, you'll have had to order three issues to get. And you know that issue one, sales start plummeting very quickly. Mm. And that's largely because people go, I'm not buying it to read it. Uh, I am speculating. Yeah, yeah. So, so. Where, where you want people to read it, you want people to read it so they'll read the next one. That's the thing. I mean, if people could go into the shop and just pick it up and buy it, that would be ideal. But of course, that's not the way it works. And there's too much content now to do that. Whereas at the app store, you could put content on there. I, this is what I was arguing. Instead of doing that for comics, what you could do is put your comic out there as soon as it's available. People will buy it straight away. It's like if, there's no printing, there's no delivery. There's none. Of, I mean, these are things we all know now because we've lived with digital comics for ten years or whatever it is. But at that point, these things didn't exist. And I said, look, if you look at Batman, only Batman, right? Batman sells X amount. And the Batman comic industry is worth so many millions. That's just Batman. So if you assume that a digital comic industry is worth, I don't know, like a tenth of Batman, that's still a multi-million pound industry. It doesn't matter what way you cut it. It's still a multi-million pound. And that's only a tenth of Batman. I'm saying you can have Batman and Superman and you know Spider-Man and all these other things. And so we got down to... And again, this is all within two weeks, three weeks of me going, I have an idea for an app on the phone. <laughs> I was doing this presentation. We got down to the second place and they said to us, genuinely, this is what they said. They said, because one of the things I said was, because um, when you're doing stuff like this and you're trying to sell, you're trying to position a company, what they want to know is what's the get out for uh, an investor. Somebody invests a million pounds in your company. They want to know how does that investor get 
A, get their million pounds back, B, make 20, 10 million. How do they get that money back? How does that happen? So you've got to kind of go, the way this happens is Apple buys us. Apple go, this is a perfect app for what we're trying to do here. This is the synergy is obvious. So we buy this and that's the get out. So anyway, they um they kind of go, uh, we got down to the second part and they said, look, we'll be honest with you. You might be right, but like, we don't know. We don't know enough about this market to know if you're right. So then shortly after Comixology turns up and then of course, um, Comixology ends up being bought by Amazon. It is a multi-million pound industry. I'm a hair's breath away from being a multi-millionaire. Oh. But, <laughs> but it's okay, because I'm not bitter. God damn it. Um, so, I mean, what ended up happening with us was that the um, NBC Universal got in touch and said, look, we want our heroes comics on the iPhone. Can you do that? Can you use your comic reader? And I was in computers at the time and went, yeah, let's do this. I'm going to leave my day job. I want to help this company do comics on the iPhone. And so I find myself programming the back end of a comic reader on uh, and, and kind of doing it and realizing this is the comic industry. I'm in the comic industry now. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, no, I'm not. I'm a programmer. This is not what was meant to happen. And so I took a chunk of cash, which we'd been paid, and went, I'm gone. I'm going to go off and I'm going to try and use this money to kind of keep me going while I just draw comics. And that's that's how I ended up leaving my day job because I was never going to leave it otherwise because the day job, I got pension, push, got holidays, yeah. I got paid quite well. I only had to work 17 and a half hours a week. Like, so I had plenty of time to draw anyway. You know, I mean, if, if I was doing that job now, it'd be like, I'd still be drawing as much as I'm drawing. Like, no, would have no difference on the impact of how much work I'm doing, really. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but I'd get sick pay and holiday pay, so I was an idiot for leaving it. But it was the only way I was ever going to leave it was this un super unusual thing that happened once in a lifetime opportunity that arguably I blew, maybe I could be rich. I mean, I did have conversations with people that amounted to, should we take multi-million pound investment or should we keep trying to pay for this ourselves so that we own all of it? And we decided to keep going on our own so we own all of it. If I'd taken them all, I think partly my heart wasn't in it. My, my heart wasn't really in, I don't want to be an entrepreneur making apps. That's not what I wanted to do. I want to draw comics. If I want to work in computers, I just keep working in computers. And that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to draw comics, so that that's the that's the shortest version of that story I can possibly tell. It I'm is being a, weird... a hair's breadth of being a billionaire. I know, I know. I mean, it's sickening. I genuinely had conversations with my wife, which amounted to, I think we're going to be rich. I think properly uh, rich. I genuinely think we're going to be rich. I'd, my underarms were sore for uh, about, for about a week from the sweat from from the not stress, but like. Suddenly, I'll tell, you, yeah. I'll tell you something else we did. Like, because we'd been banned by Apple, banned, not really banned, but we'd been kicked back by Apple. Uh, Apple the Apple store was opening in Belfast. It hadn't opened yet. And I said, do you know what would be fun? I said, do you know, what, you know what happens when an Apple store opens? What's that? TV cameras. Every time, every country, Apple store opens, there's TV cameras. And do you know what the TV cameras do? They film the first people going in, and that's it. I said, we go down there with five T-shirts, give them to the people at the head of the queue, our logo will be on national TV. And I was absolutely spot on. <laughs> so you took it felt like I could do no wrong. It was like any PR madcap idea. Like we spent like 15 quid on t-shirts and they were on national TV because we went to the head of the queue and said, hey, do you want to wear a t-shirt? And a guy and his son were there and he went, yeah, that'd be awesome. Simple as you like. That, <laughs> that's the acceptance of Belfast people, you see. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God for our wee country. 
Oh, see, it all comes full circle. Well, as I say, just a couple to finish off with. I just wanted to mention uh, that you share studio space. You've said with your son, yeah, and yeah. you're, you know, you're obviously, in, you know, are you encouraging him to get into the industry, or are you more no. likely to warn him off? No. Well, the, when my eldest son was born, who's like nearly eighteen now, um, I thought, oh, brilliant! I have got a little pal that will always be into the same stuff I'm into, and I will feed him comics, and I will make him want to do things. And, and I very quickly discovered, nope, he's not interested at all, not even a jot. And part of me felt like I pushed him too hard there, so I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to make that mistake again. And my younger son, it just he just took the comics like a duck to water. He had, he has written. So he's 14 now. Um, at the moment, he has written and drawn. I've lost track, but I think it's about three. To, it's between three and 500 pages of comics he's written and drawn. Books like, and, and not not just like, um, here's some nonsense. It's like proper plots, proper stories. The, he's actually, I mean, he was writing stories literally before he could write. Because uh, what he would do is he would say to us, can, can I have a book? Right. And we would a book would mean some pages stapled together and he would draw a little character like a little. And he was maybe three, maybe four. Jeez. He would draw a little character on it. And he and and he'd say, this is Jack's adventures. All all the stories that were about a little boy called Jack. He'd say, this is Jack's adventures. And he would get you, uh, me or my wife to write down the story that he would tell. And he would draw, he would illustrate every page and we would write the story out as he was telling us it. And so it'd be, there's one where Jack has a magic pencil and everything he draws comes to life, you know. And the, and some there's one, there's one, there's one I took a copy of, it's quite, it was about a hat. It says, this is the, the story of the cat and the hat. And here's a cat with a hat. There's a dog with a hat. The cat's sad. There's an elephant, a hat's too small. And uh, and there's a mouse with a hat. The hat's too big. He's like four years old, you know. But he's he's writing these things. But and then and then when he was about, um, what's really interesting is it's not enough for him to write these stories. He wants to see them produced. He wants to see like a book, you know. He, it's not just enough to write. He wants the physical thing, which I think is really interesting. Um, and and also what I would say as well, like when he do these books, they'd have a cover. It wasn't like I'm doing a story. It would there'd be a cover and a title and then the story and then a back page with a little drawn on it of the story and a back page blurb. He was doing proper <laughs> books like these like for no age. So when he was about eight eight or nine or something, he asked me about how do I make a hardback book. And the the thing is that, that so for me, um, I will if my son wants to if my kids want to do something, I will do everything in my power to encourage it and you know help them out and also part of that background of it is that i hate knowing that i can do something but i'm not going to or or knowing there's a problem and i don't quite know the answer to it not not being able to quite solve it that annoys me so if he goes how do i do a hardback book it's like another adult might go i don't know go to just write off to an editor and they do it i would go let me check and then i'll go on the lulu and find right so here's what we need for a hardback book okay and here's how we're going to do it. So uh, he wrote and drew a book called um, Timmy's Terror Tales, which is three stories of horror, which is a hardback, which we printed one copy of on Lulu when he was about eight or nine, including a little back page photo of, of him on the back and a bio, um, which I did for him because it looked like a book then. Uh -huh. uh, and then we we did, he did a comic called Why Not, which was sort of a short 
little, you know, like the Beano or the Dandy, lots of little characters in it. And then he he did um, uh, a story. So one of the characters is a character called Monkey Arms. She's got really long arms. So we mm-hmm. kid with really long arms. Um, who this is the great thing. This is and Monkey. He wrote a, a whole secret origins of Monkey Arms. And the Secret Origins brilliant because it's filled with titles like Chapter Four: The Death of Monkey Arms. <laughs> of course, I'm going to read this. Of course, I'm going to read Chapter Four. What happens in Chapter Four? It's like I'm not the last. That's just the middle of it. And you're like, well, no, that's what happens to Monkey Arms in Chapter Four. <laughs> so, um, in in Monkey Arms, the original origin story of Monkey Arms, Monkey Arms, his dad invents something that makes things bigger, and he spills it on Monkey Arms, and he gets really long arms, and that's the end of it. And then he's doing, he's doing, um, he's, he's, so he keeps revisiting some of these characters. So he's revisited Monkey Arms and he's doing a new story with him. And it's a new secret origin. And this time it's got the uh, Large Hadron Collider in it and, <laughs> and Stretch Armstrong. So well, this is almost like Ultimate, Ultimate Monkey yeah, Arms. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and, and we sold, we, I did a sign in, we did a sign in the skill and he had copies of it and we sold some of those there. We got those printed up. I got them printed up for them. He's on. He's on issue three. No, I think. I think he's nearly finished issue three. He's on issue four. So I only printed issue one, but he's on issue four of it. That's the thing. Like, if someone comes to me and goes, uh, "I want to draw comics," and the, uh, what I want to do is a like a six hundred page story or a five, you know, a four issue miniseries, I go look. That's a great ambition, but write and draw something short first. Write and draw some short stories, and then see where that takes you. Um, Whereas Thomas is kind of going, I'm doing a four issue miniseries with monkey arms. He's going, okay, go ahead, son. <laughs> like, go for it. You know, Energy did, of youth. <laughs> yeah, well, he did a story. He did a story called Fly about a little boy who uh, dies right at the start. Dies. Happy and story. Goes well. No, this is the thing. He he dies and he goes to be reincarnated as a fly. But in Tom's story. Um, or Thomas story, every time you're reincarnated, you go through the brain smasher that smashes your memories, so you have no memories of your previous life. Whereas this little boy doesn't go through the brain smasher, so he comes out of it as a fly with all of his memories intact, <laughs> and so he goes looking for his mate, and he has to convince his mate that he's his mate, not a fly, even though he's a fly. And it's about him wanting to go back to the to be reincarnated as a little boy again, and it's it's like and it's a sixty page you know. 60 page complete story nothing to do with the other thing it's a complete little story so he's writing and drawing stories that are really actually for his age really imaginative really good i mean i think everyone every kid that age is kind of fairly imaginative but it's it's the ability to sit down and just plot and write and plot and write and do these things one page after another it's a really difficult thing to do and it's the thing Mm -hmm. that i think a lot of people struggle with is that like comics is easy if you want to write and draw comics just sit and write and draw comics it's the sitting down and writing and draw comics is the really hard part it's just sitting your backside down and just beginning to end doing doing some work uh, and he's got that and he's 14 and i don't know where it's going to take him in the next you know 10 years but i'm kind of excited to see i think i think in you know if he i think he's more interested in writing than drawing uh and um, but he's he's happy to draw his own story, so we'll, we'll see where he goes with it, you know. It's, but I'm hands off. It's like, look, I will, I will encourage and I will help and I will I will do little things that are within my power to do that that I think will be, um, you know, that you will like, you know. Like I, I uh, I'm seeing if I can get a blurb for issue two off someone. Um, I no, actually, they've promised me a blurb, and when I get that blurb, it'll be amazing. Um, and he'll think it's incredible. But it's like I'm not gonna, you know, I'm 
like that's the level of encouragement I'll give. If you want to print these things, I will help you print them in. If you want to go to Comic Con, I'll take you to there. But I'm not going to say you've got to print these and you've got to go to Comic Con. You've uh-huh. got to do this. I my my job is to kind of go. What would you like to do? I will see if I can make that bit happen. Um, which I th- I mean I would have like if God if my dad had done something like that for me, I would have thought it was amazing. So um, so yeah, we share we share a studio space because we're sort of moving house. And prior to the move, I said to my kids they can have their own rooms, which meant my eldest got my studio space and I ended up having to share a studio space with my younger son. But that suits both of us because, number one, uh, he was sharing it previously with his brother, who is 17 and loud uh-huh. and obnoxious and in a way that I am as well. But but like when I'm sitting not talking, I'm silent. And like um, So it suits Thomas because we're both quiet. It also suits Thomas because he likes the comics thing. Um but it, it, you know, I'd still like my own space again. But I'll, I'll be getting that soon enough. Um, but yeah, so we, we share that little bit of space. That's why I'm, that's why I'm rounding the secret location right now. <laughs> Recording. Uh, it's harder to podcast in that room with him because uh-huh. he, he's always there. Or, or as happened uh, yesterday, the other day, he uh, he went into the living room with his mum, and when I came out, they both went, "God, you were ages." <laughs> And you didn't shut up. You didn't let those other people speak. So if you're wondering, uh, I'm fully aware of what I'm like. Brilliant. And that was a that's a fantastic story, BJ. Thanks for uh, <laughs> thanks for sharing it. You have been just fantastic with your with your time because uh, you're clearly you're clearly flat out, and it's a pleasure to have you on our 200th episode of the Coffee and Humans well, podcast. 200 is quite the number. It's hard to get to that on uh, anything. So well done. Know. And we we haven't renumbered any uh, along the way at all. You know, so reboots. No, exactly. But there is there is one question that we like to ask all of our guests, sort of at the end, uh, just to take you back to your 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 love of comics. You know, as a as a reader, and uh, and that question is, what is your favorite uh, title? Your favorite, whether that be a, a mini series or, or an arc or whatever, uh, from DC, from Marvel, and from independent books. Let's go with Captain Britain from uh, from DC uh, uh, from Marvel rather. I, 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 if I'm going to be super specific, I'd say the Alan Moore run. Uh huh. Let's go with that. Beautiful um, choice. Uh, I mean, I could be lazy now and say Swamp Thing, but Alan Moore Swamp Thing. But uh, let's think of something else. Um, uh, let's go with um, because I always have a weird soft spot for it because it was one of those comics I kind of stumbled across as a as a child. Um, there, I'm going to say Animal Man, but I have never read the Grant Morrison run. Ah. Uh, I discovered Animal Man in, it was like an Amazing Man story, I think it was, but Dr. Fate and Amazon, Amazing Man and uh, Animal Man were all in this kind of, which is very odd selection of heroes. Um, but I, I kind of loved that because it was so weird, uh-huh. was so different from from Marvel stuff. Uh, and for 2008, I mean, I'm going to say Judge Dredd. You know, awesome. You fuck independent. Judge uh, Dredd, 2008. Do you have a, Do you have a particular particular arc, particular uh, sort of? I think, um, yeah, I mean, like all golden ages, everything from the, my age of 12 to about 14. But I will say, if I'm going to narrow it very uh, tightly down, I would say, and it's not much loved because. The writers didn't really love it. They kind of they they were going to do uh, Alan Grant sadly passed away not long ago, mm. uh, and John Wagner um, had built up this what was going to be a mega epic. It was going to be the next big long thing after the Apocalypse War that yes, yeah, Dreads World, uh, which was City of the Damned. Uh, 
Um, and the, the idea of City of the Damned is that uh, Dread, Judge Dread, and Dread runs in real time. So like every year that passes is a real year in Dread's world. So and Dread's about 120 years ahead of us, I think. So mm-hmm. um, there was uh, something that happened several years prior where there was a, a, a saga called the Judge Child Saga where Dread was told by um, uh, Judge Fay, I think it was, it was told by the Psy Judge that you know, there's going to be a child to be born that that will be the saviour of the city. And I think and I think it was the year 2120. In the year 2120, it was yet to be 2120. Uh, Dread then went off on a on a kind of exploration across the galaxy, looking for the judge child, uh, whose real name was Owen Chrysler. And he meets him and discovers he's a little shit. <laughs> Absolute little shit. And Dread decides, look, if this guy's the saviour of this city, I'm having nothing to do with it. Nuke the planet from orbit. And so they they, they kind of, I mean, that's a spoiler for a 40-year-old story. But they, I think they, you're they, safe. They, you know, uh, they, they nuke the planet from orbit. Um, it's the only way so to then, be sure. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So, uh, so then several years later, in, in real time again, this is all real time, uh, several years later, uh, Dread is told that they've invented a time machine, the Proteus device, and that they can send them forward in time to the year 2120 to see if this Judge Faye prediction was right. And Dread goes ahead to the year 2120. And I think the idea was that this was going to be a massive, massive serial, because I remember um, this was on the cusp of me stopping reading comics, because I remember a double-page spread poster by Steve Dillon that looked incredible, this kind of weird creature called the Mutant and Dread and uh, zombie judges and all sorts of things. So Dread gets to the future of 2120, and the, the uh, like Mega City One's a, uh, a wasteland, and he discovers the mutant, and the mutant is, um, you know, this kind of weird-looking creature with four arms and uh, floats and stuff. And as the adventure, there's some incredible, like some of the best moments of Dread are in this. There's there's a bit where Dread gets blinded and he's being pursued by these judges that have been turned into vampires by the mutant. And the vampires are all kind of crowding around Dread. Dread's blind. Judge Hersey's with him. There's only, or sorry, Judge Anderson's with him, aside Judge Anderson and Dread. And they're surrounded by vampires who are about to come out. And Dread stands his ground and just calls out. He says, you know who I am. You know what I'm capable of. I might not be able to see you, but you're not going to survive this encounter. And, you know it. and they all just back away, petrified of Judge Dredd, but a blinded Judge Dredd. And Hershey's like, oh, my God, I'm amazed that worked. And Dredd's going, yeah, I'm amazed too. And they kind of saunter off. And there's the, the, the bit prior to that, which is an incredible piece of writing, uh, is this, this big double-page spread where Dredd is, um, he's just been blinded. And the mutant, the mutant's telepathic power makes him think that he's he's crawling through hell. And, and this big double page spread, which is by Ian Gibson, who lots of people would argue was the wrong artist for this kind of work. But it's still like when I was 13, 14, left a massive impact on me. But um, Dred's kind of literally crawling through hell. And, and there's the, the lettering is big and impactful it's it's bold it's 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 a real kind of it's by tom frame and it's a real in uh, you know it's not lettering you know it's not part it's not lettering it is part of the artwork mm. and it's all you know to be blind in hell to be a judge crawling your way through hell because you are the law and this is your duty and you know who you are and it's like whoa but the story goes that um, Alan Grant and John Wagner had started writing this thing. They had this tendency to um, write a story and not really know how it's going to end. 
they would just keep writing it and then find the ending. And so they started this thing with the idea it'd be huge. And I don't know uh, how it happened, exactly what way it, it happened, but apparently, essentially, they both went, God, I hate writing time travel stories. It's like, <laughs> they've, got, it's like they've got no point because everything's going to be wrapped. You, you know, no matter what happens in the end of them, they are meaningless. There's no... There's no impact. And, and so they just wrapped it up. They just wrapped it up within like a couple of weeks. Just went out. And then in the end, Dread went home. <laughs> like that. But at the same time, there's so many of these cool moments in, in, in it that, that are just, you, yeah. you just go, oh, it's amazing. There's a, and right at the end, Dread ends up when they get back. Um, they're, Dread's attacked by a zombie Dread. So the judge, the judge mutant, this is the big twist. The, the mutant it turns out is a clone of Owen Chrysler, the judge child, uh-huh. who when Dredd nuked him, the uh, this robot took cell samples from his body and created the mutant, which is what he, which uh-huh. is what ultimately became the destroyer of the city. Uh-huh. And it's like the poor judge Faye was about twenty percent inaccurate in his prediction. He wasn't <laughs> the savior; he was the destruction of the city. And um, I'm sorry, I, I could have done a whole podcast on this <laughs> of the city that I'm sorry. Um, so <laughs> at the end of it he's attacked by a zombie and the zombie comes back in time with them and they kind of they realize that um, the robot has cloned uh, thing and they kind of go what are we going to do well let's just nuke him again just to be sure <laughs> so, so that future never happens but they've still got the zombie dread with them and so they kind of put it in isolation and dread of course gets uh, robotic eyes and George Anderson says to him, you know, says, what about what about your uh, robo peepers, Dread? Dread goes, Anderson, the the eyes uh, are are the you know twenty percent more uh, efficient in blinking rates, so I should have got them done years ago. <laughs> it's just bonkers. So many great lines, and I think like if you distill everything that is Dread, you could distill it all down into City of the Damned. I think. Ah. I think that's the that's the beauty of that. If you don't like City of the Damned, you're not going to like any Dread because it's the most archetypal dread that there is really which is weird given it's the one where the writers just went ah sod it let's just stop now yeah that that often happens so i know alan moore absolutely despises killing joke he just says it was some ratty little story he wrote once and yet it's went on to become obviously so infamous in the world of batman so yeah i think creators are their harshest critics yeah, well, I think I think the killing joke was kind of um, or winging a, a short uh, uh, Joker story out for Brian Bolland, and Brian Bolland taking so long over it that the length of time he took, it suddenly drew a status. Yeah. So by the time it came out, it was like, oh my god, he spent so long on this; it must be amazing. And it is amazing. The artwork's amazing. The story is the slightest piece of paper. Like, there's no real story there. It's a couple of great elements in it, but like, there's no real story there. Um, and uh, you know, I I think it's it's a thing that gained its reputation purely because of how long Brian Bolland took to do it, and maybe it was helped a little bit by Alan Moore kind of dismissing it about it at hand. Yeah. And also, it was around the time that Watchmen and all those things had become big and, and popular. Um, so there you go. No, that's fair. That's fair. Well. As I say, I think that is going to do it for us this evening. I will be distilling this down to a good couple of hours, and I think 30 minutes of that will just be on that Judge Dredd story. But you've, <laughs> no, no, you've inspired me say, to go read it, you yeah. know, I must that, say. That, that is also the quickest any of our guests has ever, without being pre-warned, uh, got the answers to their to their uh, their DC Ranted. or Marvel. Their, yeah, absolutely. So beautifully done, sir. Beautifully done. 
God, like I could have done another hour on just talking about Alan Moore's uh, Captain Britain, if you'd let me. You know, <laughs> I've, I've recently picked that omnibus up, actually, so you never know. With, there may be a future conversation in the pipelines. I've never read yeah, it. You, you, fancy, you fancy coming rag, back for a book club? A rag of bone and a hank of hair is one of the most moving and incredible pieces he's ever done. Just <laughs> phenomenal. It's And it's right in the middle of that. It's, it's where uh, Merlin, the magician, remakes uh, Captain Britain after, after having let him die. Uh, uh, Merlin just remakes him from whole cloth, and uh, and then plants him back on planet Earth. And Alan uh, uh, and Brian Braddock, who is Captain Britain, uh-huh. thinks to himself, "Oh my God, Merlin snatched me away minutes before I died and saved my life. Thank you, Merlin," and is in tears thanking him. Just incredible. <laughs> just like you're just you're reading it. And going, oh my God! Yeah, you're, uh-huh. you're speaking Keith's language now with that Marvel living. Uh-huh. So. Mm. But uh, yeah, as I say, you've been incredibly generous for your time. It's been uh, a great chatting to you. As I say, well, I've no doubt there will be a future book club at some point, which we, we may have to get you on for. But, I'm very uh, happy to. But with regards to, yeah, as, as we chatted to uh, PJ about earlier, you know, you've got the Soul Plumber Collected Edition coming out around October 11th. Unfortunately, not in time for New York Comic Con. No, no. And uh, the Lion and the Eagle from Aftershock Comics coming out, uh, currently solicited for August 31st as well. So those will both be available in Coffee and Heroes in the future. So yes. Once yes. once again, a massive thanks to I'll our guests. I'll and sign them for you too. Ah, fantastic. No problem at all. Doors open anytime, and uh, we'll we'll speak to Mal about that signing as well. <laughs> yeah. right. Look forward to look forward to seeing you in store in person, PJ, at some point. All right, that'll be good. Awesome. So cheers again, thank and thank so thank you guys for listening, and I uh, hope you enjoyed this, and see you all in the store soon. So I've been Alan Taylor, and this has been Keith Miller. You can find Alan in store at Coffee and Heroes and on Twitter where Alan is at Coffee and Heroes 1 and I'm a Scannison 00. Coffee and Heroes is a local comic book shop, coffee shop and community hub in Northern Ireland based at Smithfield Market in the centre of Belfast. You can find Coffee and Heroes on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or email us at coffeeandheroes at hotmail.com. Make sure to check out our YouTube channel as well. The Coffee and Heroes podcast is available on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts and through all good podcast platforms. Please like and subscribe and leave a review so more people can find us. And until next time, happy reading and hope to see you in store.